0: Any of you who, in the course of your life, whether part of your vocation or volunteer work you do, spend time publicly speaking, know how difficult it can be when there is something distracting going on. And you have to decide whether to address it or just power through. And I've been through all different manner of these things. I'm talking about at camp, sometimes you'll have teenagers and they'll be playing with something and they think you can't tell and and you think, is it worth it to break my rhythm here and point that out and tell them to stop? Or should I just keep on going? Or sometimes there will be actual grown adults who will be having these whispered conversations which they think are silent to everyone else but actually they need like whispering lessons because everyone can hear every word. We often will deal in this day and age with the cell phone ringing or the watch alarm going off with the oblivious owner of the cell phone and or watch just sitting by while it continues to happen. And you think, well, how long do I let that go before I go, come on! Somebody turn that thing off. Sometimes it's much bigger uh, One of the more difficult situations to preach through is at the mission the rescue mission many people there They don't want to hear you preach They want lunch and they're told sit here for half an hour and then lunch is served And so there's often people who will put headphones in which is against the rules or do other things And I don't stop and call them out on it And one time there was a, a gentleman who I I'd kind of had gotten to know a little bit, and uh, he wasn't much interested in, in hearing God's Word preached, and there are always a few people in the front row very engaged. So I mostly preached to them, and then I I look back now and again, and I saw that this guy was, was kind of rocking in his seat, and I thought, oh, okay, he's listening to some music, maybe in his, in his headphones, maybe just in his head, I don't know, but you do you, and I kept on preaching, and I kept on preaching, he started rocking more and more. Suddenly I realized... This guy is not listening to music. He's having a seizure. At which point we shut everything down. We stopped with the lesson. We called the ambulance and we had words of prayer over this guy. It was a very uh, weird situation. And yet it still wasn't as weird as the situation in which Paul finds himself in this text. Wondering how long do I keep doing ministry... With this demon-possessed girl walking around behind me, shouting, These are servants of the Most High God, showing you the way of salvation. Anybody had to deal with that? Like, etiquette-wise, how long are you supposed to let that go on before you address it? Well, Paul lets it go on many days. And it, it as soon as he addresses it, probably what he had feared would happen immediately happens. And we have this crazy explosion of activity and it winds up pushing forward the gospel because God, who is sovereign, is in control. Now, if you have still your color map, you may want to pull that out just to remind yourself where we've been and where we're going. If you don't, on the way out, you can grab a color map from the back there and stick it in your Bible uh, right by the side door. They've gone all the way through... Uh, Asia Minor, and the whole time they wanted to turn north or south and go into some lands that they hadn't been and start ministering, go into some cities where they had been and check on the churches, but they were kept from it. Remember, the Spirit did not permit them. And so they had only the option of turning back, not an option, or keep on going forward. And they kept going forward till they got to Troas, and you see that is a coastal city, a port city. And there, Paul had a vision in the night of a Macedonian man saying, come on over, come across the sea, come to Macedonia and help us. And so they decided that they would. Having picked up Luke and Timothy on the way, Paul and Silas hop on a boat and they go to the city of Philippi. We talked about how usually Paul goes to the synagogues and there he preaches and often starts making converts there. Doesn't seem like there was a synagogue in Philippi. Outside of the city, On the Sabbath day, they found a meeting of women there praying. Paul shared the gospel, and people came to faith, primarily a woman named Lydia, who was a wealthy woman, a successful woman, and it seems that her home then becomes the location of the church in Philippi. That kind of brings you up to speed. At this point, then... As they were on their way to the place of prayer, and I assume that this doesn't mean outside of the city at the river anymore, but rather at Lydia's house, but it probably doesn't matter. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, this seems very weird And out of the ordinary to us, it wouldn't have been as weird in that day. While it was forbidden in the Old Testament, certainly, and out of bounds for someone like Paul or Silas, divination or fortune-telling was fairly common in the Roman world, in Greek culture and society, whether by interpreting omens or looking at the stars or claiming anyway to speak directly to and hear directly from the spirits of the dead, and when you look into the Greek here, literally what's said is that this, this girl had a python spirit, which is just all kinds of creepy. A python is a mythical snake. It actually, no one called any real snakes python until the 1800s. We're talking about a, a mythical Greek creature, a snake associated with the god Apollo. And to us, we're like, a, a snake spirit? Yikes. But the Greeks did not think of this as any kind of malevolent spirit. This was the kind of spirit that might tell you details of your life and be very useful and give you some sort of direction going forward. But we know, of course, what Scripture already tells us here and elsewhere, that these pagan manifestations of pagan gods and and this sort of divination, this sort of thing, either it's just complete huckster nothing, or it's the manifestation of an evil spirit, a, a demon, which is what it was in this case And what we know of these practices and and what we can glean from some of the Greek grammar here is that this girl normally would go into a trance and sort of contort and out of her would speak this spirit and would say things about people, details of their lives that were actually true. In fact, she says true details about the life of Paul and Silas. Maybe she just was saying what everyone knew, but maybe she had known this supernaturally. At any rate, this spirit of divination is nothing to be messed around with. In fact, we find that this girl is a slave, but she's also a spiritual slave. She's she's owned by these two men, and in a sense, being possessed, she's owned by this spirit. And no one has any pity on her until Paul comes into the picture. These men do not think of her as anything but a meal ticket, a means to end, not a human being who is suffering, who is scared all the time, not someone who is forced to go into this horrible trance and, and have a, a, a spirit speak through her. And you hear the demonic perspective when, when this demon cries out through her. It's, it's so fascinating to me how often this happens in the Gospels, that as Jesus is casting spirits out, they will shriek, You are the Son of God! You are the Son of God. They they are actually building his rep as he is defeating them. It's like they can't help it. Encountering such raw power and majesty as is present in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, they shriek and cry out. And that's what happens here, it seems. And following them around continually, these men are servants of the Most High God. Why the Most High God? Well, that is a term used sometimes in the Old Testament for the God of the Bible, never by any Christians in the New Testament. But I think of Isaiah 14, 14, which we've usually understood as being a a kind of a description of the fall of Satan in which he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. The demonic spirit, which is very prevalent, I believe, in our culture, in our society, Western world today, it's all about lifting yourself up higher and higher i will become like the most high and it must have been terrible for this spirit to say oh these people they follow and point you toward the most high god the one who truly is the most high so many days this goes on and finally the esv says paul becomes very annoyed and turns and casts the spirit out Can't imagine trying to do ministry, trying to talk to people about their lives, trying to share the gospel. Meanwhile, this is continually going on. Just ignore it. Just ignore it. Just ignore it. And yet, you have to ask, why wouldn't they have just accepted the free advertisement? Right? There's no such thing as bad publicity. If she's actually saying something true, these people are servants of the Most High God, and they are showing you the way of salvation— Everyone who knew about her and that she could tell you true stuff about your life, they'd say, oh, maybe I should listen to him. Why not just let it play out, let it ride? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, as is always the case with the devil, it's an almost truth. An almost truth. If you you were to look at the the Greek grammar here, there is no definite article before way of salvation, the way of salvation could be inferred, maybe, but ultimately what she's saying is they're showing you a way of salvation. And even though the the Spirit designates God, the God of the Bible, as the most high God, that still leaves room for this assumption that there are many gods. And so what they're offering, according to her, to the ears of most people in Philippi would be a way to a God, not the way to the only God anyway even to the most high god that's not good enough for paul there's also the fact that jesus always silenced spirits when they said to him you are the son of god he would say quiet i like it when occasionally a translation will will render that shut up he says to the to the spirit shut up no i don't want your praise i don't want you to be saying something true about me because mixed in with your lies it becomes confusing for the people who hear it and then there's just the question of what does it mean that paul became very annoyed i think sort of of the brother and sister in the back seat and the brother's poking and poking and poking and poking and the brother's four years younger, and his name is zach and eventually the sister snaps and becomes very annoyed and shouts for dad to put a stop to it But we also could translate this very grieved, and I think that is probably more accurate. Grieved for this poor girl. He can't watch this happen any longer. He knows it's going to create trouble, but he has to alleviate her suffering because it's within his power. If we learn anything from this text, first of all, we need to recognize that it teaches us not to screw around with this kind of garbage. And a lot of Christians think that it's okay to just dabble a little bit people in the ancient world they were drawn to someone who might offer some sense of of purpose or order in what was a seemingly indifferent world where people were just sort of drifting through and no one had any real agency over their own life except the hyper elite and powerful and rich and as today people wanted some sense of control and and knowledge and and power and today we find even christians i gotta go to my psychic I'm going to deal with tarot cards or astrology, Christians talking about healing chakras and harnessing their chi and and looking at their horoscope and all this kind of stuff. And, And I go, what are you doing? Either it's fake or it's demonic. If it's not the spirituality we find in Scripture rooted in the Most High God, the one true God, it is nothing to fiddle around with. It is... is when we start doing this that we start thinking of the gospel as a way to a God. And all of these other possible ways, well, may as well keep my options open. We see here the seriousness of this sort of thing. I always sort of chuckle as I drive down and there's this psychic reading place on Cedar Street. I always think, man, if I was a psychic, I would use that knowledge to get out of that sad strip mall next to that sad, like, porno shop and buy somewhere nicer. Am I right? And yet people go, and people trust, and people fall for it like they did back then. So as soon as he casts out the spirit, obviously the men who were the quote-unquote owners of this slave girl see their whole future, all of their financial security dry up. That's how we made our living. And so they grab Paul and Silas, drag them into the marketplace, which is also the forum. It's a place not only of commerce, but where there would be public meetings and, and there would be kind of court proceedings. And they say, somebody, we get, call the magistrates, we're going to address this. We've got a beef. And when we read their beef, what really has offended them and upset them is not exactly what they want to present to the people. This is very familiar if you've read the Gospels. When, when Jesus' enemies, the religious establishment, decided that they had had enough and they were going to deal with this Jesus problem once and for all, why was it? It was because their power was being threatened. Their position was being threatened. All that they had and all that they, they kind of flaunted, it could disappear. And so they said, we're going to have to deal with this Jesus problem. But when they went to the authorities, all of a sudden it was about religion, religion, And it was about patriotism. It was not anymore about me being threatened in my particular situation. Suddenly they're saying, well, this guy, he says he's the king of the Jews, but we have no king but Caesar. This guy said he was going to tear down the, the temple and rebuild it in three days. I can't believe he would say such a thing. Same sort of thing happens here. They're not about to say, they cost us money. No, all of a sudden they grow some principles. And again, it's religious and it's political and patriotic. Remember what I taught you about Philippi last time? Populated by veterans of the Roman army. It was a Roman colony, which meant that even though we're in Macedonia, we're far from the heart of the Roman Empire, this is more like Rome than almost any other city in the empire. There there aren't that many that are actually colonies. And so Roman religion and tradition were incredibly strong and foreign religions were banned inside the city. You remember that? That's why they had to go outside to the, to the river to pray as, as Jewish believers. And so they appealed to these things. These men, being Jews, you see the anti-Semitism that was building at that time. That just being Jews was kind of its own crime, arousing suspicion if not automatic contempt. this is right about the time when claudius expelled all jews from the city of rome we read about that elsewhere in the scriptures they are also disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us being romans to accept or practice so they're being jews we're being romans they're bringing these weird other ideas they're not acceptable to who we are but they're trying to get a foothold with them. They are troubling the city. That's the accusation, ultimately. They are troubling the city. And there's some truth to that. In fact, in a sense, that's what we're called to do, is come and sort of be sanctified troublemakers. Elijah, you remember, Ahab says to him, when he sees him after three and a half years of no reign, he says, oh, there you are, you troubler of Israel. And, and he doesn't deny it. It's a time when Israel needed to be troubled. And there are people and institutions and, and, and values that need to be troubled and will be troubled by the proclamation of the gospel. In this case, it was those making their living in human trafficking who were troubled and went and began to, to make a fuss. Certainly doesn't stop any time after this and uh, the, the, the centuries that followed. I mean, I think about... Uh, the preaching of the gospel in america among slaves and how people wanted to shut that down hold on a minute don't tell these people that they have value that they are made in god's image or ha- have you read the biography of adoniram judson he got on a ship months and months at sea to get to india wanting to bring the gospel as soon as they arrive he says oh i gotta stretch my legs no you're not allowed off the ship oh, no, I'm kind of sick, I need to, nope, you stay there, what are you here for? Well, we're bringing the gospel. The British East India Company says, no, 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 we don't want to tell these Hindus about the gospel. You're not allowed to do that. You get out of here. We like the caste system. We like being able to keep people down. And so get out of here with that gospel. They were troubling the status quo. Today, this is all around us. Are, are we, as the church, troubling these things? Are we causing trouble in the right way, not in an obnoxious and pointless way? I'll tell you what, we're still surrounded by this kind of human trafficking. I, I went down to San Antonio, and, and it, we spent some time with some guys who work with these uh, Operation Underground Railroad and other groups that, that, that seek to end human trafficking and, and bring people out of that life. And and I had a a former cop driving us around saying, in here I arrested some guys in the back room. There were three girls chained to a bed over here. this." And and I said, finally, dude, I would never move to San Antonio. No offense. He said, well, where do you live? I said, Lansing, Michigan. Cute little town, big city, sort of, small town vibe, sort of. It's wonderful. He said, how many live there? I said, 110,000 or so. He said, you've got it. You've got human drive. You put your your head down at night within a 5-10 minute drive. This stuff's going on. The church bringing the gospel and the leavening effect, speaking truth, challenging the status quo, ought to be troubling to those who are enemies of truth. And even apart from all that, just bringing the gospel was troubling because again these are these are traditions and practices that are not lawful for us as romans to embrace we live in a similar time you know we're living in a time when people are fed up with this atomistic naturalistic view of the world where where anything supernatural is ruled out and anything spiritual all of it is equally invalid people are getting tired of that and that is good news for us as we preach the gospel But at the same time, people are more pluralistic than ever. And that's a great challenge as people, they they don't view all forms of spirituality as equally invalid, but as equally valid. And so they'll listen if you say, I have a way to a God. But if I say, I have the way to the God, the one true God, hmm, I'm a bit of a troubler of the times. And we need to not be afraid of that. Just as Paul and Silas were not afraid of what would result from proclaiming the gospel boldly. And what happened was that two magistrates, the two appointed to each of these Roman colonies, together they say, yeah, we agree you are a bad influence here and you need to be punished. They order the lictors, that's what you call the guys whose job it is to hit people with rods, whatever. They call the lictors to come and beat them with rods And we see here that there's just nothing, even remotely resembling due process of any kind. It says that they tore their clothes off, and that might even be a weak translation. Because I've heard someone say, like, it was so hot, I tore my shirt off and jumped in the pool, but they didn't actually tear their shirt, right? No, the King James says they rent their garments off. They ripped them in half, and then they laid their backs open, hitting them with wooden rods, just, just, just beating the, the tar out of these men. This is one of three times, by the way, that Paul experiences this horrible, inhumane punishment. So both Paul and Silas are badly beaten, covered in welts and blood, then they're thrown in prison, and the order is given to the jailer, keep them safe. Uh, I think that ship has sailed, but he says, okay, I will keep them safely locked up. Now, for a moment, I want you to, to get the flannel graph ideas out of your head where Paul and Silas are in, like, a cell with cots and their, their cellmates. We have a great notion of what these prison cells were like. We even have a pretty good idea of the one where they, these two men would have been with many other people in one common inner cell. And their necks would probably have been in iron collars, their feet locked up in stocks, and it wouldn't have been everybody has their own stocks, but it was two long pieces of uh, t- timbers and, and then kind of bored holes through half on each one for the feet, but, but not big enough for your ankles, really, so that when they screw them down and tighten them together, it, it rubs you raw, and it, it's a constant source of, of pain. These stocks are not just to keep prisoners from trying to escape. They're part of a punishment, this sort of ongoing, low-grade, passive torture. And so this place is, it's damp, it's cold, it's in almost complete, if not complete darkness, and there's no circulation. The air just sits there with a stench in it. This is not somewhere that you would want to be, and if you were there, your last thought would be, let's have a sing-along. But at about midnight, as Paul and Silas were praying and singing praise to God, what? They say that like it's normal. As Paul and Silas were praying and singing praise to God, and the grammar here seems to indicate while pouring their hearts out in prayer, they sort of burst out into song together. In this horrible, pestilential cell, as uncomfortable as one can be without being actively tortured with, with wounds that are dirty and unbandaged on the hard floor, their ankles raw and chafing, their, their bodies stretched cold and afraid, they break out in song. The word in the original is humneo. That's where we get our word hymn. To sing hymns. you ever found that singing the hymns that you learned in growing up in the church, that you learned after you got saved as an adult in the church, has a completely transformative effect on your outlook, on your state of mind. To begin to sing praises to God I've known people where where illness had stolen almost every last vestige of who they truly had been except those hymns were still locked in there. God wired our brains so that, that those are remembered in a different part and they stay locked in to the very end. Bringing comfort, bringing hope. And so they begin to sing and they're singing these hymns. And those people in there with them don't say shut up. No, they're listening. Apparently Paul and Silas had a decent... Uh, singing voice although I saw a very funny cartoon this week it was uh, the jailer about to fall on his sword and Paul's going is our singing that bad but apparently it was good enough where the fellow prisoners were listening it was better than anything they'd heard in a while locked in that cell and as they listened and that's in the imperfect they were listening in a continual way we find that Paul as he points out in the prison epistles later never sees chains as being able to hold back the gospel. All chains do is change who the intended audience is of the gospel. He'll be writing letters. He'll be ministering to his fellow prisoners, to those who are holding him in prison, to anyone who he can talk to. You cannot silence the gospel. In fact, in Revelation 20, we see that it's a chain binding Satan so that he cannot stop the spread of the gospel to the nations. And as they're singing, what happens? But a great earthquake shakes the whole place. Such a great earthquake that it loosens the bonds of everyone, or perhaps that was a separate miraculous thing. It opens the door to the jail. And that must have been such an amazing situation. But Paul and Silas have in mind, obviously, already, that their God is beyond capable of anything like this. It's nothing to him. Now think about that uh, that iconic scene on Jurassic Park where they're in the car and for whatever reason they have like glasses of water, you know, like you do when you're in a car. And uh, the T-Rex is coming and you see the little ripples. And on the, behind the scenes they said they tried all sorts of different things to try and make those ripples come out right. So they looked just as foreboding as could be. They, they would like smash things into the car. They would actually hit the earth next to it with these big machines and things and nothing made it look right. Finally what they did is they attached a uh, guitar string an e string from a guitar to the bottom and then they would just go and that would make it do exactly it looks like a big t-rex is coming but from the point of view of the the filmmakers it's just it's one little note god reaches down from heaven says i got your earthquake right here That you feel like you're in a situation where you are completely hopeless. That's one pluck away from God giving you absolute freedom. And even locked in there, they knew that they were free, in chains for the gospel, yes, but free by the gospel, free from their sins. And waking up with a start, the jailer sees, oh my goodness, what have I done? Fell asleep on the job. There was an earthquake. They all got away. Remember, it's dark. He can't see. And, and he's about to kill himself, to fall on his sword, because if you have lost your prisoners, your life is required in their place. And Paul shouts out, don't do anything, rash. We're all here. Now, the question might come up, Paul being in the inner prison, and they're not being light yet until it's brought in, how does he know what the jailer is about to do? I think he probably hears him running toward the cell. Maybe he hears the creak of the, the door as it is opened further hears the sword pulled from its scabbard, maybe a wail of despair, and puts two and two together and just shouts out, don't, don't do it. We're here. And if they had just waited 10 more seconds, that guy would have ended his life and they could have all sort of peaced out and never come back to Philippi. But they don't. Because this man's soul hangs in the balance. I think about the story of the the, uh, Aka Indians, the Wadoni Indians, in in peru and how the missionaries who were on their way there's a wonderful movie called uh the end of the spear i recommend it highly uh and in this in this movie we see uh nate saint talking to his young son as he's about to go and reach out to these people that everyone on earth thought were just absolute savages and they were involved in a lot of revenge killings they were very murderous people and and he knew that his father was bringing a gun they thought if we had a gun, if we get in a tough spot, we just fire it in the air and it'll scare them away. They've never heard a gun before. And his son says, if they attack you will, you, will you use the gun and protect yourself? And he gets right down to his son's level and looks him in the eyes. He says, listen, the Wadoni aren't ready for heaven. We are. They're not ready for heaven. We are. They're, in that moment, you have to understand it's more important for them to go on living because they could turn to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're not ready for heaven is exactly what seems to be on Paul and Silas' mind. As they say, don't do it. Don't do anything rash. We're still all here. And I mean, they had, a, they had, they had no reason in the flesh to care about this guy. He was keeping them locked up. That he hadn't done anything for them. He hadn't washed their wounds. He hadn't been kind. He'd locked them up like he had with anybody else. And yet, they cared more about his freedom than their lives. And they cared more about his life than about their freedom. So, he asks the question then, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This has been the cry of every awakened heart. What must I do to be saved? This trembling jailer is at the end of himself. And anyone who has found Jesus Christ has at some point gotten to the end of him or herself and cried out What must I do to be saved and found the answer in the gospel and believed in Jesus Christ, which is exactly what they tell him Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved Now, I mean this man's ready to do something His idea of religion is you do you do you do you do you do and he had just been ready to do something very very rash And so now what have I got to lose? I kind of got my life back. What do I have to do? How can I be saved? You're the ones who everyone knows are servants of the Most High God bringing the message of salvation. And basically they answered, do? All you do is receive. There's a story once, Billy Sunday had had a big... uh, what do you call revival tent revival and and it was done and as they were finishing and they were pulling the tents down and they were gathering everything up and about to leave a young man showed up and he said oh i tried so hard to get here on time and i've missed it i'm so sorry but but i just wanted to know how how can i be right with god what what can i do and billy sunday said sorry you're too late he said no i can't be too late what do you mean i'm too late i mean you're st- just tell me i really want to know he said i can't help it you're too late you can't do anything It's been done 2,000 years ago. Now you just accept it, receive it, and you will be saved. And while their initial answer is very brief like this, notice that they unpack that more as they have time through the night with the jailer and his family, and they proclaim the word of the Lord to these people who have now put their faith in Jesus Christ. Many times I think people think they get to that crisis point, they call out to God, and then they go, okay, I'm good, I got my fire insurance, I'm all set. No, the scriptures say we keep on walking with him, walking toward him, sanctified, studying his word, becoming more and more like Jesus if we've truly been saved. What's interesting, and I think a lot of people miss, is that before he even brings Paul and Silas into his home or out of the jail, They seemed to proclaim the gospel to his family, to his household. Probably their home was under the same roof as the jail itself. Probably when this earthquake shook everything, they came to check on him to see if everyone was okay. And what they found was dad over here listening to two of the prisoners as they proclaimed this foreign religion. And he was broken to his core and put his faith in Jesus Christ, as did all of them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Not when you believe, they'll be saved. No, you and your household believe and you'll all be saved. And now notice that the answer that he gives is faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff. It's done. And yet as soon as they accept the salvation that God offers, they begin to do. Not in order to earn salvation, but because they've been born again. And they can't help but overflow with the love of God. It's the same thing we saw in Lydia's house. She came to faith and immediately said, you got to come and stay with me. I can give back. I can, I can serve God in that way. And it's clear what this man can do to serve God. And so he brings them out, it seems, to a, a courtyard where there's a well and he washes their wounds washes their stripes having just learned that with similar stripes on the back of christ he's saved and as he's washing their their wounds they continue to proclaim the word of god to him and then probably using the same source of water they then baptize this man and his entire family and then a weird thing happens and probably it never happened before he's like well you guys want to come over A minute ago, you were locked up, and I was your jailer. But now, would you like a little something to eat? He's he's exalted in the love of God because he's believed. And just like with Lydia, immediate hospitality is his response. Because that's the most readily available and, frankly, the most needed in that moment of all good works that he could do. And so now we've been inside two homes in Philippi that are inhabited by two very different people, and in both situations, Paul and Silas are shown kindness and given food and given comfort as a way of manifesting the salvation that has been found and the love for God in Christ. What I love to think about is that even though it never happens in the text because we go with Paul and Silas as they leave, you know, you know that this jailer and his family met Lydia on the next Lord's Day that they showed up at her house and they were like is this uh, where the church is what a cool thought and 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 perhaps it's possible that this slave girl then having used up her usefulness for these men was given her manumission or somehow found her way to that church as well what's happening is a new family is coming together in philippi people who have been born again born of the spirit Remember, in Acts 2, they met in each other's homes day by day, praying and breaking bread and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And in both Lydia's home and the jailer's home, they both become immediately sanctified places where church is happening. They're breaking bread together, and there's teaching and prayer and rejoicing because of what has happened to them. In fact, that's the reason for all the weird behavior on the part of this jailer because he is rejoicing. And that word in in verse 34, it's an odd Greek word in that it is never used in secular Greek. We don't find it in classical Greek writing at all. It's only in writing about rejoicing in the Lord and what he's done. If you don't know Jesus, you don't need a word this strong. If you do know Jesus, even if you're locked up in a cell in the dark, with the smell of dung hanging in the air, you need this word. It means to rejoice in the Lord. In fact, you know that that very famous verse, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice? Who was Paul writing to when he penned those words? The church in Philippi. That's Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice always in the Lord. And you know, these men on this night have come to mind for me many times. In any situation where I'm tempted to start to feel sorry for myself or wallow in some kind of pity party, I like to think of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. I ask myself, am I better off or worse off than they were? And and I have to think, what would happen if they had started to wallow? If they had, you know how easy you can start feeding off each other's negativity if you're with two people? What if they started feeding off each other's sense of, this is bogus, we shouldn't be in here, we're Roman citizens. We're obeying God. Man, I wish I could go back to that vision of that guy telling me, come on over to Macedonia, and tell him to choke on his invitation. Had they done that, would the earthquake have happened? I kind of think no. In fact, when we get caught up in the pity party, do you find that you often don't want it to end in a weird sad way? It's almost satisfying, and you keep thinking, this is all right, this is fine, I'll sit here in this, it sort of feels good. Not even for something great would I want it to stop, and yet here we find them praising God in the midst of all of their adversity makes me think of Romans 15 and 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. They're praising God in this dank cell, in this place that looks hopeless, knowing it's never hopeless when our God is involved. I remember I used to have a bookmark with a quote from Chuck Swindoll that said, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. And the fact is that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, that 90%, it's not on your shoulders. We need only turn to our God and say, give me peace in this moment. I reject any bitterness I might want to harbor, any anger, any self-pity. Give me hope. Give me courage. This was a place that was designed to break your spirit, and yet they were singing In Job 35.10, remember Job had things pretty bad too. Elihu calls God the one who gives songs in the night. And that happens exactly here. They are in a place that looks hopeless, but God is giving them songs in the night. And as they're singing, it's not that they were stony and unfeeling, you know, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson or somebody. I'm so tough that nothing can drag my spirits down. I'm untouchable. No, we find that out later on in a the beef they still have with the magistrates and b 10 years after this as paul writes to the thessalonians he's still talking about how he had quote suffered and been shamefully treated at philippi yeah no this leaves a mark absolutely it's not some heroism here it's something supernatural something that only the holy spirit can create robert Jamison describes it this way This is not impassive Stoicism. It is the transport of the soul triumphing over both shame and pain. It is the sense of God's presence deadening the sense of everything else. The expulsive power of a new affection in the noblest sense of the phrase. Or Tertullian puts it more succinctly, the leg does not feel the chains when the mind is in the heavens. Now, If Paul and Silas had had the big hair religious TV station in that cell on that day, they might have heard a different message. That they were out of step with God's plan for them, or they wouldn't be down here in this pit. That that they should be involved in some kind of life more abundant that manifests itself naturally with lots of money, success, and positive energy. And Paul and Silas, you guys have got to stop this stinking thinking that keeps getting you into these messes but instead they remember Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you, just like Peter and the apostles had when they had been flogged in the temple Paul and Silas rejoice and are glad. Morning comes around, and lo and behold, we hear word from the magistrates, we think these guys have had enough, why don't you let them go and do it quietly, get them out of here as quickly as possible, maybe before the sun fully comes up and everyone knows what's going on. Why? Why the change of heart? We're not told. I think likely they felt the earthquake during the night naturally the pagan thought would be that the gods are angry best not to uh, take the chance that they're angry at us for what we did or they just realized during the night that they had overreacted whatever the case it's not going to be that easy paul says "Uh -uh -uh." i call shenanigans i'm paraphrasing he says we're we're romans You think you can do this? You can take us without a trial, flog us publicly, shame us, harm us, imprison us with no trial, and then just send us away? No. One would have to wonder, upon reading this, why didn't they bring it up before the fact? Hey, hey, before you start hitting me with those rods, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do that. Hey, hold on, I deserve a trial. Well, maybe it was strategic. Let them beat on us today and tomorrow we can leave. No protracted trial. I happen to think that's not the case. Had they invoked their Roman citizenship right at that moment, other people who were not Roman citizens watching might have said, ooh, I better not put my faith in Jesus. I don't have that get-out-of-jail-free card. Paul suffers. He chooses to suffer as an example. Much like if you've read Baptist history, Obadiah Holmes, when he was arrested by the Puritans, They said, you've got to pay this fine or be whipped, flogged, and pilloried. And then somebody came from Providence and said, we've got the money. He said, no, 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 no. They want to whip me, they can whip me. And he became an example of, of suffering for his faith, and the faith grew. Well, in that way, Paul and Silas truly are a great example. And then they decide it's time to pull out the Roman citizen card, because if they were quietly shuttled away... Then what happens? The word on the street in Philippi is those guys were criminals. That whole thing was a scam. But if they say, no, no, you can walk us out yourself, we can be publicly exonerated, that makes it better for the Christians who are left behind. For those like Lydia and the Philippian jailer who have been saved by grace. For others who will come to faith. For other missionaries, including Timothy and Luke, who stay behind. Notice that. Only Paul and Silas are requested to leave. We're going to let you out. We're going to walk you out, but you're going out. Okay, we'll leave. Have fun staying in Philippi. And the we section of Acts ends until chapter 20. They stay there and they minister. And I think in in this age, when more and more the, the culture is hostile to the gospel, we're going to have to be able to do this sort of, I'll obey the letter of the law, while proclaiming the gospel and furthering the gospel agenda, being as crafty as serpent and as innocent as a dove as Jesus commanded us. I mean, these men had received a true humiliation, their naked, bleeding bodies held up as a spectacle. And on one hand, yes, Paul signed up for this, but on the other, he doesn't take it lying down. He was a Roman. Scourging or imprisoning him with no trial was illegal. In fact, scourging him at all was illegal, the way that they did it. And and remember, Jesus, even in the midst of laying down his life, turns to someone who had struck him. And he says, if I have spoken evil, tell me what I have said that is wrong. But if what I say is right, why do you strike me? You don't have to roll over and say, oh yeah, just, just destroy the church and we'll stand by nobly. No, we can stand up and say this is wrong, knowing that we will endure for the truth. Paul uses his advantage Paul uses his privilege as a Roman citizen, not for his own gain, not to keep himself from suffering, not for his own comfort, but rather for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And whatever privilege and whatever uh, advantages we might have in life, we can choose to use them for our own comfort, for our own advancement, or for the kingdom of God. And by orchestrating this public exoneration, he had helped the church to carry on and grow And become strong. Only Paul and Silas were asked to leave. And so they leave and they continue on. And next time we're going to follow that arrow as it continues through the Roman world. But we're going to see that at every place they stop. They don't say to themselves what would be most comfortable for us. What would be least risky for us. They say what would be most faithful to the gospel. Let me close with a little story. Some time ago, a man was staying in a chalet in the Swiss Alps. Early one morning, he heard what sounded like an earthquake, a great earthquake, and, and he began to freak out. He started, he ran and got into the bed, then he thought, no, this is very dumb, and he went and he got in the, into the bathroom and thought the porcelain might protect him, but it lasted only a short time, and then it stopped. And so he ran to the front desk, and he said, what's going on? Is something horribly wrong? And the man at the desk said, sir, don't worry about it. We're on the west side of the mountains. And as the sun comes up in the east, the snow and the ice begin to warm and they expand. And the expansion causes this loud crashing noise on the other side of the mountain. And it sounds like the end of the world, but it's actually just the beginning of a new day. As we, as Christians, often find ourselves in little bits of hot water here and there for the sake of the gospel suffering and in our world today there are so many who are suffering in prison and giving their lives and we in the west are going oh how is it getting so very bad listen it's not the end of the world even if we were in chains and in the stocks like Paul and Silas what sounds to the world like the end is the beginning of a new day the coming of the gospel our God is the God who has created everything who goes you want an earthquake here you go one one little flick of the finger who who says i am the god of the sea and of the land and of everything above and below the earth he is our god and if we are in his hands then it, no matter how dark it is no matter how damp it is no matter how horribly bleak it seems we can rejoice rejoice in the lord always and again i say rejoice heavenly father we thank you for what here is a wonderful example by these apostles for us to remember that we are safe in your hands that ultimately we are immortal until your purposes for us are fulfilled and even then we know that while we die we will not perish that that the second death will not touch us and we will live forever with you and so lord may we be bold may we not placate the world may we not be afraid to be troublers and, and called that, Lord, well, may the hashtag troubler begin to, to, to gain steam on Twitter because of what we're doing. And as we make that kind of trouble for the world, we pray that people find themselves like that jailer at the end of the weak and feeble hope that the world offers, saying, there must be something more. What must I do to be saved? Lord, may we be ready to hear that question and answer it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your family. Amen.